God is good, amen? All right, the rain we got yesterday and again this morning uh, just serves as a tangible reminder of God's grace and mercy and provision for us. So I hope it drew you, hopefully, first of all, I hope you got some of that rain, but I hope it drew you to praise Him and to thank Him for His care for us and for this world. And I love how God orchestrates seemingly little things like that into our daily lives to remind us not only of His goodness, but just that He's in control. Too often we have a tendency to lose sight of that. We, we have a, this tendency to see the sin that plagues us and others and creation around us and fall into despair rather than to rejoice in the goodness of God. Now we do live in a sinful world, but we are not citizens of this world. Last week we finished up what we called heavenly civics. This idea of how Christ followers as citizens of the kingdom of God are to relate to and live in a fallen world. And Peter has laid out for us that to follow Christ is to submit to the will of God as Jesus did. And that plays out practically in all of our earthly relationships of which Peter gave several examples. In each of them, Jesus was our example. Not merely do as I say, but do as I did. We're called to keep our eyes fixed on Him and walk as He walked. To conform our lives to the pattern that He gave us. And when we do, when we, when we live out our faith and our lives begin to look like Jesus's, we can expect suffering and persecution to come. Jesus Himself reminded believers that if the world hated Him and we look like Him then we can expect to be treated like Him. In fact, the opposite is also true. If you've never faced any persecution or hardship or suffering for follow Christ, if it's never cost you anything, chances are the world doesn't feel too threatened by your faith because you don't look much like Jesus. Now, there are times of peace, and we don't just go out looking for suffering. There's nothing necessarily redeemable or redeeming about suffering in and of itself. There are times of peace, but if you stand for biblical truth, then suffering is inevitable. It's going to come eventually. Why should we expect to be treated better than or different than our master? We ended last week with the encouragement found in this. That when we endure suffering for righteousness' sake, though it is painful and unjust, we find joy in the fact that the world sees Jesus in us and the assurance of our salvation and the genuineness of our faith that that brings. And it is evidence that our faith is more than just words. And this is where we're going to pick up the text today. So if you will, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. And one more time, I'm going to have you stand this morning. We're going to get our exercise this morning. I'm going to have you stand in honor of God's Word as we read from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And we're going to finish out this chapter. I said the same thing in my Sunday school class, and we didn't quite finish out uh, all the way through the end, but we're going to do it today. We're going to finish. We're going to go all the way through the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. So 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. <clears throat> Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that Peter wrote uh, for the the inspiration of the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in having him write this. Lord, for just how timely it is for us today. Lord, we thank you for everything that we've learned Uh, Up to this point, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that I would speak clearly this morning, Um, not my opinion, but your truth, Lord. And we know that um, your truth is what we're here for. Your truth is what brings us here. It's what unites us together. And Lord, again, I just uh, praise you for who you are, uh, for the fact that you never change and that we can trust in the sacrifice made on our behalf. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to hear from your word this morning, but not just hear it with our ears, but that it would, um, that we would process it with our minds, that it would soak into our hearts, and that it would change us from the inside out as we leave this place, that we would look more and more like you in a dark and sinful world. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Now in this second half of chapter three here, Peter shifts his focus from our actions and responsibilities as kingdom citizens to when that suffering comes, how are we to respond? What, what are we to do when that happens? Now, I'm just going to preface all this by saying there's a ton of rich theology and practical application in this text. Uh, we're not going to have time necessary to, f- to flesh out all of this, so there's um, room to return to this text at a future date. Um, But as we go through here, as we walk through it verse by verse, I'm going to point out specifically three ways that Christ followers are to respond to the suffering that comes from living as a kingdom citizen in a sinful world. And the first one is that Christ followers respond to suffering with faithfulness. Christ followers are to respond to the suffering that comes from following Jesus with faithfulness. He says in verse, verses 8 through 12, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In verse 8, that word, finally, signals that this section here is connected to the same theme that we've looked at the last two weeks. As citizens of, kingdom of, as, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in a sinful world, all right, he lists five characteristics that should describe how you relate to one another as believers. The last two weeks, we've looked at different examples and seen different applications for different situations. But here, he addresses this to all people. To all people. Again, look there in verse 8. Finally, all of you, everyone who is reading this, all the believers to which I'm addressing this letter, all of you, his entire audience. And we know that this letter was addressed to a group of believers. And the first one that he lists here is this call to have a unity of mind. Now this does not mean that everyone in the church agrees on everything. If you've been involved in church for very long, you'll understand that that's, that's not the case. And that's not the point. It's not that unity of mind does not mean that we're going to agree on every detail. If, you, if, you're not, if, you, if you disagree or don't believe me, then let me just invite you to come serve on the building committee for a little while, and you'll understand there's a lot of opinions uh, that, that get floated around. Um, when we started looking at the you know, color of carpets and pews and all this kind of stuff, uh, there was not always unanimity of thought there. And that's okay. That's perfectly fine. We come from a variety of backgrounds. We have different skills and interests and jobs and education levels, family backgrounds. We bring different perspectives to the table. And those are good things. That was designed by God. But it's the gospel of Christ that brings us together. That is the reason why we're all here. And this unity of mind is referring here to this desire for God and His will. It's not a unity of heart or soul, or opinion. It's a unity of mind. It requires a level of intellectual effort, a desire to learn and implement God's Word in your life, and to allow His Word to shape and inform your life and your decisions. I'm going to use the deacons as an example because they're a great example. A lot of times an idea will get discussed when there is a wide range of ideas and, and opinions and sometimes it gets a little heated and people get frustrated and there's some some debate and discussion and again that's okay because at the end of the day we stop and ask okay what does the bible say because ultimately my opinion doesn't matter what i think will be best doesn't matter it's what does the bible say because god's will is what we want ultimately that's the goal that's what we want when we stop and ask, what does the Bible say? I've seen it time and time again where a group of people can come in divided and leave united on an issue because they went to God's Word. After laying aside personal preferences and opinions and looking at God's, what God's Word says on the matter. You see, unity of mind is submitting our ideas and our opinions and our preferences to the Word of God. Unity of mind is not compromise, not compromising biblical truth. It's not overlooking or ignoring sin in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's the way of the world. That's what the world says. That's how, we, that's how the world says you achieve unity, by just ignoring other 
people's faults, ignoring sin, and just be tolerant of everyone. That's not what the Bible says. That's not true unity. That's ignorance. True unity is going to the Word together and seeking the one and only truth that's found there. If we're all seeking the truth of God's Word, then that is what unites us. We're united under one objective truth. And as a group of believers, that is what this church should strive for. We can be different, and we can disagree at times, and that is okay. In many ways, that's a good thing. But we must strive to be united by the Word of God, actively working through our minds to mold us into His image. And this takes active engagement on your part. Now, the second one he lists there is sympathy, also traded, also translated compassion. Paul, in describing the marks of genuine faith to believers in Rome, teaches similar. We've seen a lot of similarities between what Jesus teaches and what Peter teaches and what Paul teaches, and that's for good reason. They're teaching, they're, they're teaching in different contexts and different settings, but it's the same truth. Paul describes in Romans 12, 15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We are to care deeply for one another and do life together, and this requires... A degree of selflessness. Again, here we are, this is not this this call, this command, this characteristic is not issued in a vacuum. We're called to follow the example of Christ. Look at Hebrews 4:15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. We see this characteristic of sympathy or compassion even in Jesus Himself. That should also characterize us as Christ followers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And speaking of brothers and sisters in Christ, the next one is brotherly love. If Christ has made me new, if I've been reborn into the family of God, as Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This idea of being born again into God's family. If we are in Christ by faith, then we have been reborn, and therefore fellow believers, the others who have been reborn, are also my brothers and sisters in Christ now. Therefore, we are to love one another as family, because we are. Again, look at what Paul says in Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And again, here we see, even in Paul, we see this idea of being born into the family of God through faith. We see the suffering of Christ that comes with that and the future glorification that is our promised inheritance. We see the same teaching woven into Paul's letters that we see in Peter's and that we see in the words and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus. We are called to love one another as family. Then he says we are to be tender-hearted. There's a fairly wide array of ways that this particular phrase is translated. But the idea of tenderness also describes Jesus. Now, Jesus never compromised the truth, but he dealt tenderly with sinners. Now, he was harsh with the self-righteous, but he called sinners to repentance with tenderness and patience. That's the same way he 
addressed and responded to us. And we are to be tenderhearted towards others as Jesus is toward us. We are to reflect His love to those around us. A lot of times we view this idea of being tenderhearted as being, we, we equate that or associate that with weakness, but that's not the case at all. It's a reflection of Christ's love for me and how I respond to you. We are to respond to one another. We are to treat one another, to speak to one another, to do life together with one another in a tender-hearted way with compassion and caring for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ because that's how God first loved us. And the last one here is humility. And again, Jesus is our example. Look at Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, Peter understands this idea, this idea of humility firsthand, because if you're familiar with the story of Peter through the Gospels, Jesus knocked his pride down a notch or two from time to time. That was part of who Peter was. He bragged that he would never leave Jesus, yet when pushed him to shove, he ran away when the soldiers came and then denied that he had any association with Jesus, that he even knew who Jesus was, not once, not twice, but three different times in a span of just a few minutes. And yet he saw Jesus' example of humility in his life, in, in Jesus' life. And he experienced being humbled himself. When we recognize who we are, who Jesus is, and what He did for us despite knowing who we were, despite knowing us at a heart level, then we can be truly humble towards both God and others. It's awful hard for me to think I'm better than you when I see myself rightly compared to God. When I recognize what Christ did for me on the cross, it's awful hard for me to look at Jesus on the cross and recognize what He did for me and then be prideful towards someone else. Because I realize that I don't deserve what He did. It wasn't because of me. It was in spite of me. Jesus exemplified each one of these characteristics. That's part of the point that Peter's making. Yet, how was Jesus treated? He was mocked. He was ridiculed, he was beaten, and he was killed. And so we can expect, if we exhibit these same traits, to be treated in a similar fashion. If, the, if they mocked Jesus, if they ridiculed, if they reviled Jesus and treated him unjustly, even though he was compassionate, he was humble, he was tenderhearted, then if we look like him, again, Peter is, is, is trying to warn us that it's going to come. We can expect no less. To this, Peter says, we are not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, for we have been called to this. This is integrally, integrally, my big word for the day, intertwined, integrally intertwined into what it means to follow Jesus. Suffering and persecution for righteousness sake in this life is part of the package deal. Look at John 15. Verses 18 and 19, look at what Jesus said, what, how, what Jesus tells his disciples, his immediate followers right then. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world 
hates you. This has been a theme of Peter's throughout this letter. Suffering is coming. Persecution is coming. If we look like Jesus, then we can expect to be treated like Jesus. If not now, then soon and very soon. Genuine faith comes at a cost in this world. But remember, we're not citizens of this world. We're exiles in this world. Christ followers are not to lash out in vengeance, but rather to bless. How how countercultural is this idea? That we're not to respond in kind, but we are rather to do good to those who do evil to us. Paul says the same thing again in Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then later on in the same chapter in verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Again, we see this theme that our response to other people as kingdom citizens is not dependent on their treatment of or their response to us. It's not contingent on what, how other, what other people do to me. Evil actions on our part are not justified merely because they did it first. That is a childish argument, and yet we tend to use it every day. We see little children do it. Why would you hit your brother? Well, she started it. And we... we we, we look at that and we think that's ridiculous, don't act that way, and then we turn around and do the same thing to God. Why did you respond? Why did you get angry? Why did you lash out that way? Why did you say those things? Why did you respond that way? Well, they did it to me. That's a childish argument. Rather, we are called to be faithful in any and every situation and leave the, just, the justice ultimately in God's hands. But there is still more here. We are to bless our enemies, Peter says, in order to obtain a blessing. Now, what is he talking about here? This is a text that's often used by prosperity gospel preachers, but Peter is not even hinting at the idea that we can manipulate God into getting earthly blessing by doing good works. That's not at all, in any way, shape, form, or fashion, what Peter's talking about here. Rather, the only way we can respond to those who persecute us in this way. The only way that we can do this, that we can respond with blessing and not cursing, that we can love our enemies, that we can respond to them as Jesus responded to us. The only way that we can do that, the only way that we can do that is if we are in Christ and our hearts have been changed by Him. If that is the case, if we are in Christ, then what have we been promised? What has Peter already told us we are going, we are set to receive? A blessing, an inheritance. That's what salvation is. An eternal inheritance of salvation. And the blessing we obtain by the works of the Holy Spirit through us are eternal in nature. Again, the encouragement here is if we respond in this way, if we respond as Jesus did, it's evidence of the Holy Spirit working through us. And if we have the Holy Spirit, we are promised an eternal blessing. An eternal inheritance, eternity with Christ. Peter then goes on to quote 
there in verses 10 through 12, he's quoting from Psalm chapter 34, verses 12 through 16. We're not going to take the time to read that today, but you might jot that down in your notes and go back and look that up later. Read that entire psalm. It's, uh, um, it's, it would be really beneficial uh, for you to do that. So that's your assignment, one of two assignments. I'm going to give you another one in a minute. But that's one of two assignments that you have this week, is to go back and read Psalm chapter 34. Psalm 34. Specifically here, he's quoting from verses 12 through 16. He says, we are to discipline our tongues, our speech, guard our speech, repent of our sin, turn from evil, and pursue the peace of Christ. And Peter acknowledges that there is blessing and goodness in this on earth as well. There is a physical element of this blessing. It's not all just eternal or spiritual in nature. There are physical benefits to this today in life on earth as well. The psalmist describes these as good days. The one who seeks, the one who loves good days, the one who wants to love life. Here's how you are to live. Here's how you are to relate to one another. He describes these as good days, and what makes them good is our relationship with God. It's not earning earthly blessings from God. It's the relationship we have with God. When we submit to His order for our lives... He draws near to us. His face shines on us. He hears our prayers, and that's a good day. Regardless of what your circumstances are, knowing that I, have, that I can go before God and He hears me, that is an immediate, that's an immediate blessing right then and there. That's a good day. We are to respond to suffering with faithfulness to God and to His Word, remembering that when we pursue righteousness, regardless of the cost to us, God hears our prayer, and there is an unfathomable blessing awaiting all who serve Him faithfully. Not only are we to respond by being faithful in our actions, but we are to respond also to suffering with clear, courageous speech. Clear, courageous speech. Look at verses 13 through 17. There's more than just how we live and orient our lives. That's what he's been dealing with up to this point, but now he's going to take it a step further and talk about our speech. Starting in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He gets right to the core, right to the heart of the matter here in verses 13 to 14. This idea of who are you really afraid of? Whom do you fear more, God or man? It will show in both your actions and your speech. We are called to be faithful to the Lord. We are called to be faithful to the Lord, and we are. Then what can His enemies really do to us? Think about that. If we are being faithful to God, then in the grand scheme, if we have an eternal perspective, what can this world really do to us? What can they really take away from us? Jesus tells his disciples, as he, in Matthew chapter 10, when he sends his disciples out, in verse 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, 
Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If we know, if we know that our faithfulness is not contingent upon the response or actions of others, and we know that blessing comes as a result of persecution for Christ's sake, then we need not fear man's response, but rather seek to honor the Lord through submission to Him as the Lord of our lives. And when we live in this way, when we have hope and joy in the midst of persecution and suffering, we have peace in the midst of a tumultuous world, when we bless those who curse us, and when we respond, and when we don't respond to personal attacks in kind, when we set our lives apart as a living sacrifice to the Lord, people will notice and people will ask. People will say something about it. Not all, but some. We're not called to just live faithful lives and just hope that people see Jesus in us and come to faith. No, when we live faithful lives and people see Jesus in us, then we are to tell them about Him. This means we have to know what we believe. We have to be in His Word. We have to be learning it. Many people don't share them. We're going to get personal here this morning, by the way. Many people don't share their faith because they're afraid of rejection or of what others might say. It's an excuse that I've used myself. But right there, what does that say? That's fearing man more than God. If I'm afraid of what you're going to respond, how you're going to respond, or what you're going to say, or what it might cost me, then I'm admitting right then that I fear man more than God. Others say they don't share their faith because they don't have all the answers. They're, they're afraid someone's going to ask a question they can't answer. I don't really know how to do this. What if they ask about this? Or what if they, what if they bring up something that I don't know how to address? Well, guess what? You'll never have all the answers. And it's okay to admit that. It's okay to admit that you don't know something. But then go find out. There are people in your lives. There are people in this church. There are, if I don't have the answer, I can point you to a resource or we can figure something out. All right, if you don't know an answer, if you, if you come across something you don't know, then go find out. But I suspect that many of the same people who are afraid to defend their faith because they don't know enough, I fear that they're doing little to nothing to rectify that situation. Recognizing you have a lot to learn is great, but stopping there is not. Stopping there is an excuse. Recognizing you have a lot to learn is great, but it should motivate you to study. It's not an excuse for silence. Others say they don't defend their faith because they're, they're just not well spoken. Or they, they just don't know what to say. I don't know how to explain it. And it's not going to be perfect. It's not. No matter how many times you rehearse it in your head, it never comes out the way you think it will. You never walk away from an opportunity to defend your faith and go, yep, I did it perfectly. You always walk away. And if you've done it, then you can attest. You always walk away going, oh, I wish I had said this, or I wish I had worded it this way, or why did I stutter over that, or why did I blank on that verse? I couldn't remember that. It's never going to go perfectly. Praise God, it's not up to us. Praise God, it's not up to our performance. But here's the issue. If you, can't, if you genuinely can't explain what you believe, 
then you have to question whether you really understand what you believe. If you say, I don't share my faith because I don't really understand, I don't really know what to say, I can't explain it, then how can you believe? It doesn't have to be super complicated, but if you don't understand, if you can't articulate the basics, then if you can't explain the gospel, if you can't explain what it means to be saved and why you have hope, then do you, do you really understand? Do you really know what you believe? Because the reality is genuine faith must be your own. Not what you heard, not what mom and dad said, not what the pastor said, not something that you felt but what you have been convinced of by the Word of God. That's genuine faith. And when that faith is challenged or questioned, we are to be ready and willing and courageous because it does take courage to defend the hope that you have with gentleness and respect and a clear conscience. I remember when I was in youth, when I was a teenager, the big catchphrase at the time was living the gospel. Live your faith in front of them, in front of your friends, and witness to them with your life. And this is partially true, that's not bad, but it's woefully inadequate. It falls far short of what we're actually called to do according to God's Word. Yes, we are called to live out our faith. Yes, our faith should lead to action. And yes, people should see Jesus in us, but we are also called to courageously articulate the truth of the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. Because the world, our world, our friends, the people around us, those who see Jesus in us, they need to hear it. And we should rejoice at any opportunity we get. But we also want to make sure that we do it respectfully. Paul describes standing for doctrinal truth similarly in Ephesians 4.15. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. We are to speak the truth out of love for the one asking or the one for whatever reason or whatever situation that we have an occasion to speak to to defend our faith, to, to explain what we believe and why. Not in a mean-spirited or disrespectful way. The goal, the goal is not to win a debate. The goal is to clearly explain this is what I believe and why. This is why I do what I do. Not in a disrespectful way as if we're somehow better than them because we understand something that they don't. Remember, it is only God who opens eyes. And you and I were just as blind as anyone else in the world until God, in His patience and by His grace, opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel and gave us the faith to believe it. Nevertheless, we're called to be ready, called to prepare so that when an opportunity arises, we can defend the gospel with our words. With our words. When, when we respond respectfully and out of love and compassion and speak the truth in this way, it does not mean that persecution will stop. It's not like if you explain it well enough, then they'll go, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. I'm going to agree with you. Right, that's, and the vast majority of the cases, of times that's not going to be the case but he says those who are attacking you will be the ones ultimately put to shame those who are attacking you will be the ones ultimately put to shame he ends this section by reminding us that it is better to suffer at the hands of men for following God than at the hands of God for doing what is evil suffering will come when it does 
And when we are, when, when we face this persecution for our faith, let us be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. When people revile you, when people mock you, when people say, why do you do that? Why do you believe that? Peter says we need to be prepared and ready to answer that question. And then what they do with that is between them and God. It's God who determines the results. But, it, but God uses people to spread the gospel. God chooses to use us to tell others. That's not something that just happens. He says we are to prepare, to be ready for that. To look for those opportunities. Not to go out and beat people over the head, but to look for opportunities. When the opportunity comes, when someone questions what you believe, can you defend it? Can you explain it? You might be made fun of for it. You might be mocked. But at the end of the day, who is going to be justified? Those who believe and obey. We respond with faithfulness in life. We respond with our words. And finally, we respond to suffering with trust, by trusting in Christ. Look at verses 18 through 22. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, here we have, honestly, what can be described as one of the more strange passages in the Bible. One of my favorite, as I was reading and studying this particular passage this week, I came across one particular guy who said, all right, well, this, is what, this is what I believe Peter means by this figure of speech. And he says, but I, I, I want to preface this by saying I am in the minority, but so is everyone else. And that's what you find out. If you go and no matter who you read, and every person that I read, every, every source that I checked, they all came up with something different. And that's just, that's just the, way, that's the way it is. This, it does not translate very well this section here but we get hung up reading through here on this idea of Christ going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison and who those people were and what that means it's easy to miss Peter's point this is one of these this is one of those texts if you want to know um, it will tell you a lot about it'll tell you a lot about how your pastor views the word of God as to whether they preach this text or skip over it. Because that was the temptation this week was, you know, I could just skip over this and we could just move on. Next week, we could just, we could just move on to uh, chapter 4 and just kind of skip over this. Because there is a lot of confusion and it's just hard and well, we'll, just, we'll move on. But that's not the case. Right? It's in God's Word for a reason and we're, going to, we're not going to skip over the hard things. Now there's a... The danger here, though, is we don't want to miss the overarching point that Peter is trying to make. There's a lot of theories about what this means. There's not a lot of consensus. It's a phrase that just doesn't translate well. And the truth is, 
if we're just being honest, we don't know 100% what Peter is referring to here by that phrase, the spirits who were in prison. We don't know. I've heard people use this text to say that Jesus went to hell after he died and he preached the gospel to those people between his death and his resurrection. And I can comfortably stand here and say that that is not what Peter is describing. That is... That, that, that would be error. That does not match with the rest of Scripture. So if you've, if you've heard that explanation, that is one that I would stand here and say that that is incorrect. Because there is no second chance for those who have died apart from Christ. A good example of this is found in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, if you want to jot that down and go look it up uh, later. We don't have time this morning to dig into that story, but I would encourage you to take a minute this week and look over that account beginning in verse 19 of Luke 16. But Peter here is pointing out that Jesus suffered unjustly for our sin. And he paid the penalty that we deserved, that all who come to repent of their sin and turn to him shall be saved. And in the same way, this message of repentance was preached through Noah. But the people would not listen. They persecuted Noah. Peter, Peter loves to use Noah as, as an example. He addresses Noah again in the, in the book of, in the letter, in his second letter, in 2 Peter um, as well. So that's, I don't know if maybe that was like a personal hero for Peter. But it's a great illustration. He uses Noah as an illustration. Noah was persecuted for his righteousness. He was mocked. He was reviled. He was made fun of. And only eight people seven if you don't include Noah, were saved by Noah's call to repentance from the flood. Only seven, only Noah plus seven others, his sons and their wives, were saved. Those who rejected that call to repentance, those who mocked, those who reviled, those who wouldn't listen, were justly sentenced to hell, while those who followed Noah's example of righteousness were saved, and it was the Spirit of Christ that called him to repentance. The same idea that Noah should repent and be righteous is the same righteousness to which we are called to. The same God whom Noah was loyal to and obedient to is the same God we are called to be loyal and obedient to. God's expectation and His calling to His people in this sense has never changed. It goes all the way back to even before Noah's time. Now to this reference to salvation from God's judgment, Peter connects this to baptism. Now, The water of baptism, the water in the baptistry, does not have any special magic properties. That water is just well water. It came out of the ground. I pumped it in there yesterday. It's not special. It's no different than the water that comes out of the sink or the toilet. Just throwing that out there. It's not special. It cannot save. It's just water. Rather, it's the person's faith in the substitutionary suffering and death of Jesus that Peter talks about here, it's their faith in what Jesus did on our behalf that draws them to respond to God by identifying with Him publicly in baptism. That's what saves. Now, the word baptism, not to get in too deep here, the word baptism is just the transliterated Greek word. That means it's a Greek word. The Greek word is baptizo, and baptizo... When you translate it into English, we just, we just say baptism. All right? we're, not, it's not, we're not translating it. We're just coming up with an English word that sounds like the Greek word. We're not actually changing the word at all. So when he uses that word baptism, that Greek word that's used just means to immerse. 
right? to dunk, to go to cover with something, right? to go completely under. That's what the word means. Now, we have taken that word and we've applied it to our ordinance of baptism. That's where we get the word. We immerse completely in water as a symbol of our death to our old self and being resurrected to new life in Christ. But I don't think the ordinance of baptism is what Peter's talking about here. He explicitly says he's not talking about the washing of the physical body, not cleansing of the, the flesh. He's not talking about physical water here. He's talking about a spiritual reality. And he gives this example of Noah. Noah and his family were saved by the water because they obeyed God and built the ark to God's specifications despite the persecution they received. So in the face of persecution, Noah remained faithful. Noah trusted God's word and Noah was saved. The ark floated. When the water came, the ark floated and it was deposited right where God wanted them to be deposited. Despite the persecution, Noah was faithful. The water floated the boat and they were saved. This same water, however, served to destroy all those who did not follow Noah's example of righteousness, all those who did not obey God, all those who were not faithful to God. They were living in a sinful world that was eventually completely immersed in God's wrath and judgment through the flood, and they were saved by their faith in God's promises. Even in this account, it was Noah's faith in the promise of God that saved him. And in the same way, we too are living as exiles in a sinful world that will one day be immersed in God's wrath and judgment once and for all. Not through water, but through fire. And only those who have placed their faith in Christ will be saved. The act of baptism in the church today is a public symbolic statement, public proclamation of that saving faith that I believe in Jesus and so I'm being obedient to him by being baptized. Now I understand that these are very broad discussions of very complex topics. Uh, So I will plan to take a week in my Sunday school class here coming up to deal with this specific text in more depth to show you some of the other possibilities and we'll walk through that. If anyone's interested I'll let you know when we're going to do that. It'll be in a couple weeks. But the main idea is what we don't want to miss. The main idea Peter is trying to convey is not in question. It's, it's the same across numerous theologians, against, across numerous people. It's the same throughout his letter of 1 Peter. It's the same that we see in Paul. It's the same that we see in Jesus. His point is not in question. Some of the words that he uses, some of the word pictures that he uses, might, we might not completely understand, but the point clear. Jesus suffered and died for our sins. He was dead, he was buried, and then he rose again from the grave and is seated at the right hand of God in all power with all things being subjected to him, under him, because he suffered for our sins, we don't have to. That's the point. He suffered for our sins so that we could obtain His righteousness. And if we suffer for righteousness' sake, let it serve to remind us that our sin debt is paid. Everything Peter has been talking about, the last two chapters, boils down to this. No matter your circumstances, no matter the cost, trust the sufficiency of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Keep your eyes fixed on Him and follow Him. When the cost of following Jesus begins to rise and suffering is inevitable, face it head on, being faithful in action, courageous in speech, and trusting Christ's work on our behalf 
has already secured the victory over sin. That's the point. That's how Christ followers respond to suffering in a sinful world. We stay faithful to Him in our lives. We are courageous to defend what we believe and why. And no matter what happens, no matter the cost, we trust that victory is already won. Our inheritance is secure. Our blessing is waiting for us on the other side. We are merely exiles in this world. Again, this is Peter's writing this letter as an encouragement. It's, it's, it's not doom and gloom here. Peter's writing this letter to encourage believers that this is, this is our reality. The victory is won. It's over. And what's happening to you and that what you're going to experience in this life, the suffering that's going to come, the hard times that are going to come, the cost of following Jesus, those things Paul describes as light and momentary compared to eternity with Christ, compared to the glory that will be revealed. That's where we fix our eyes. When we walk through this life with an eternal perspective, with our eyes fixed on Christ, then we can have joy and comfort and peace no matter what's going on around us. As Kelly and Kathy come to lead us in another time of of worship, we're going to sing a song that really proclaims this truth. I want to encourage you this morning, this is a song that you've heard before, a song that we've done before, but I want to encourage you to focus on the words of this final song and sing them wholeheartedly to our King. It's also fitting that as we ended this message with the discussion on the word baptism and what that means and how it relates to what we do when we baptize, it's fitting that we will conclude our service with the baptism of a young man who has come to this point of making his faith his own and wanting to publicly identify with Christ by being obedient to his call to be baptized. So before we do that, as we get ready to worship the Lord again, let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you never change. We thank you for the fact that the victory over sin has already been won, that our inheritance is guaranteed. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you have offered. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you as we go through this life. Lord, help us to be faithful. Give us the strength to to follow you when when it gets hard. Lord, help us to, to see the cost of following you compared to the inheritance that's waiting for us. Help us to see that no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what pain and suffering, no matter what persecution, no matter what we might lose here in this world, it's not even worth comparing to what we gain in you. And Lord, as we keep our eyes fixed on you, help us to be ready and willing to explain to anyone who will listen why it is that we have such hope, why it is that we can find such joy in the midst of hard and trying times. And the answer to that is, it's because of you. It's because of Christ. It's because of Jesus. The world needs to hear that. And Lord, help us to be courageous, to be your mouthpiece to the world. To anyone who will hear, to anyone who will listen, Lord, give us courage, give us boldness. And Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity again for to stand here today and to witness yet another young man come and say, you know what, I've counted the cost, 
I understand what Jesus asked of me, and I want to follow Jesus. Lord, we, we praise you for that. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done, for your grace and mercy that you've shown us that we don't deserve. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.